What does a self-described relentless change seeker think about opportunities for women in the business, servant leadership, and new perspectives on solution for employers? We'll find out all that and more on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Major League Mindset, dedicated to helping you play bigger. Do you want to become the authority in your market? Would you like to prospect less and sell more? How can you create those long-lasting relationships with clients who don't change advisors every year? We've been there and done that, and we can help you do that too. Click on our Major League Mindset logo on the ShiftShapersOnline.com website for more details about our next Pitching from the Stage program that will help you become the advisor you know you can be. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're talking with Emma Passe. Emma is CEO of ePowered Benefits, consultant writer, and self-described relentless change seeker, which in these days, in this industry, is a really, really good thing to be. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, relentless change seeker is kind of synonymous with Shift Shapers, so let's delve into that a little bit. Tell me what you mean by relentless Shift Shaper. Well, I mean quite a few different things, I think. I have a few different plates spinning in the air, and they all seem to have this pretty consistent backbone, which is just the relentless pursuit of positive change. And I say it a lot when I'm in the industry. You know, you and I kind of run in the same circles, and I've been pretty verbal and open about my desire to change healthcare, but also to empower people into leadership for the purposes of changing healthcare. And I think a key to being able to achieve that in general is to be relentless in the pursuit. And sometimes that means being a little aggressive. Sometimes it means being persistent. Sometimes it means even being annoying every now and then. But the point is to forge on no matter what the obstacles might be. And I think we'd all agree that in healthcare specifically, there are quite a few obstacles in front of those of us that consult and those of us that represent other healthcare entities. So I guess really what I mean is just be relentless in your pursuit of positive change, whatever that change might look like for you. Well, I know that you focus a lot of your efforts and a lot of your practice around building sales tracks and building tools and helping women. And I applaud that. I think back to when I first got into leadership at NEHU and I could look at an audience and any of the women that I saw were mostly spouses. There weren't very many women in the business. And now I work my day job for a woman who started a benefits agency 30 something years ago when that was almost unheard of. So I I really love that you're doing that. But why is that needed today? I mean, aren't we kind of on a level playing field? I think we are much closer to being on a level playing field. And I don't think it's It's not that women aren't as included as they were before by their male counterparts. That doesn't seem to be the issue. For me, it seems to be that women themselves don't always have the confidence they need to take a seat at a table full of men in the same industry. And 
this kind of came about for me. The reason I got on this track in the first place in female leadership and actually more of minority leadership than just female leadership was I kept going to these conferences you know, all kinds of different industry ones. Some of them were NAHU, some others. And I started noticing that people were putting together these professional development tracks specifically for women. And while I can appreciate what the goal was, which is to bring a bunch of women together for the purposes of empowering them in a group, what bothered me was it felt like that signified an exclusion of men at the same time. And it felt a little bit hypocritical to me to say that we want to take a seat at the table with our male counterparts, but to do it in a way where we're still segregating ourselves from them felt a little bit counterproductive. So I remember I was at a conference in Washington, D.C. very early this year. And and again, I saw one of those female-only tracks and I purposely didn't go in. Instead, I went to a meeting where there was mostly older males at the table. And I literally just walked up there, pulled out a chair, sat down and initiated a conversation. And I can tell you that for the first maybe two minutes of my action there, I felt very nervous and I felt a little bit like I didn't belong or that I didn't have enough to contribute in this group of much older, perhaps perceived much more knowledgeable men. And it went away after about two, three minutes of me sitting there and realizing that I did have something to contribute and that no one was really excluding me. It was more about my feelings that I would be excluded no matter what. And so anyway, I because of that experience and because I started noticing that the exclusion was something that we were sort of doing to ourselves, I developed this path where I'm, my goal is really to just bring everybody that feels like they don't have a place or that they're not confident enough to take a place that they will take steps or find inspiration or motivation to take that initial two-minute seat at the table, whether that's a female or any other minority that might apply to them. It's kind of almost hard to imagine that folks who sell a product nobody wants at a price nobody wants to pay that they hope they never have to use would then feel somehow less than adequate to sit in a group and and have a conversation. What do you think attributes that? What, What causes that? You know, I'm not sure. I think, again, it's our lack of confidence. I remember, you know, I've been doing this now for, I think this is my 14th year. So my my daughter is about to turn 14 and I started right about when she was born. And it took me a really, really long time, regardless of how much knowledge I had or how much I taught myself or how much experience I gained over a period of time. I still have days, even today in my current position that I don't feel confident in knowing all of the answers. And I think what people fail to understand is that we don't have to. And that's kind of the beauty of growth in general, especially in our field as it is changing. And we're sort of on the precipice of this massive change where to your point, people are purchasing something they don't want for some price that's unaffordable for something that they hope they'll never use. We're shifting that landscape. And as a result, we have to shift a lot of what we've previously understood to be true or what we've relied on to be our our foundational knowledge base. And I think people get fearful of that or they find fear within it because they don't feel like they're capable or that they're knowledgeable enough to really present it, especially to a group of people that they perceive to be perhaps more intelligent or more capable. But I think that's sort of where the opportunity for growth and development really lies is that 
there's things we don't know yet that we will eventually figure out. And that's sort of the point, right? We all have to develop ourselves into something a little bit further. And I think women are especially guilty of not giving themselves enough credit when it comes to feeling slightly inadequate, especially in a professional setting. Do you think that's what drives that kind of desire that that you had or that thought process that you had that before you engage, you have to know all the answers, which of course nobody does, but. Yeah. I mean, there's a fear of saying, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure there's plenty of people, consultants, carrier reps alike that have stood up in front of a meeting and had that initial feeling of nervousness because heaven forbid, someone's going to ask a question from the audience and you're going to have to say, I don't know. And it's part of the development of leadership is becoming comfortable with saying, you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I will go out of my way to figure it out and get back to you. And I think I've been fearful of that in the past as well. And again, what I'm trying to do with the whole empowered leadership movement that I created earlier this year is get people to accept that you're not going to know it all right away. And you shouldn't, because if you did, there is no more room for you to grow at that point. And there's a saying, I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's, if you are the smartest person in the room, you need to find a different room. And part of empowered leadership, part of the movement is to highlight or feature other leaders in the industry, but not feature their strengths necessarily, but the ways in which they've overcome some of their failures or some of their struggles, which in and of itself expands on how they have become strong over time. But it's it's a process. It's all a process of growth and learning. And now a word from our sponsor. Let's get serious. Are you tired of watching those other advisors in your market snapping up the primo relationships and wondering what their secret is? Well, time to get your bubble burst. There is no secret. What do they know that you need to know? They know how to create engagement, relationships, and authority, and now you can too. Our Pitching from the Stage course has already helped advisors learn how to hone their messaging in a way that resonates with the clients they want, and we can help you do that too. Keith took the class and said, Thanks and kudos to David and Andy. They've been enormously helpful in steering me in the right direction and providing tips, guidelines, and ideas for public speaking. Carol said, I wanted to get myself more at ease with doing presentations, and this course was a great way to build my confidence. This is definitely a course you want to take. Well, now you can join Keith, Carol, and all the others who've gained the confidence, competence, and course of action they need to become the authority who can pitch to many prospects all at the same time. Our next four-week class begins on September 18th, and there's still room for a few more attendees. For more information, or to sign up, just click the Major League Mindset logo at shiftshapersonline.com. And now, back to our conversation. Well, you've mentioned the word leadership uh, a half dozen or so times, and I think that's really, really important. And you and I both, we talked offline, you and I are both proponents of Robert Maxwell and servant leadership and those books that came after Maxwell's. Talk a little bit about what the difference is between plain old leadership and, and a servant mindset leadership. I think it's where your investments are in people. I think we've all worked for management or bosses or presidents whatever, that have felt a little bit like being given an instruction manual. And I sit on the chapter leadership development committee for NAHU, and I did a leadership forum in, in Washington, D.C. last February. And I spoke about this. And, and 
real leadership to me comes when you're invested in the success of the people that you have been tasked to lead. It's it's often misunderstood when you're put into a position of leadership and you're given a title that means something to you. And and it still does, right? So many people are dependent on their title. Does it have a C in it? Does it have the word management in it? And that's sometimes how we look to seek for validation of our title or our purpose or our professional ability. But leadership to me, true leadership, is being invested in the success of the people that you have been tasked to lead and not necessarily your successes as an individual. Because if you have a group of people that are looking to you for that example and you can invest in their success, your success is going to organically follow them. Follow them. I think that's the difference. It's being able to give someone the opportunity to do whatever it is that they do best in the way that they do it most efficiently and being a cheerleader or a supporter of them reaching some level of achievement or accomplishment that that propels them into that confidence that minorities and women are looking for in order to feel less excluded. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always found that the more enamored someone is with the title on their business card, the more they have a need to grow as a leader, that that that's almost a deficiency because leadership doesn't have anything, as you know, doesn't have anything to do with title or with position. Leadership has to do with action and how you act and how you interact. All of those great kind of, some people would call them soft skills. Some people don't like that term, but it's, it's really much, much more than a, a title on a business card, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I think a lot of people depend on it. I know, you know, I have a father who I wanted to make very proud in my, in the, you know, the first part of my career. And, and I remember when I was younger feeling like my title was really important because it was indicative of what I was capable of or what I had achieved. And now I actually hesitate to introduce myself as more than just Emma. And I will sometimes leave my title out of my introduction so that people don't make, you know, some preconceived assumption about me based on what my job title might be. And I had this very discussion with a, a, a woman who's part of the empowered leadership movement just a few weeks ago, and she happens to be a sales support specialist. And I asked her to participate with me on a, a leadership panel that I was doing locally here. And her first reaction was, I'm not a leader. I'm a sales support specialist. And I had to go through the motions with her to explain to her how she expresses and embodies leadership, regardless of the fact that her position might have the word support in it and not necessarily management. And there's so many people in this industry that are working jobs that that don't have the manager or the, the leadership title, but are in fact engaging in leadership every single day that they clock in and clock out. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Now, back more into the nuts and bolts of what's going on in the industry today, you're also a pretty prolific writer, and you've had a couple of articles out on, as you had a few articles out on LinkedIn, uh, a couple that caught my attention, maybe we talk about them separately, is the first is, is about reference-based pricing, and, and you talked about some truths and some myths. And we've talked a lot about RBP on the podcast. What's your take on it? Where do you come down? What are the truths and the myths? The truths are that reference-based pricing is simply a pricing mechanism, and that is it. It is the one thing that is replacing the way that providers get paid in order for us to remove a network and implement the other strategies that truly do contain costs. And I wrote that article because 
RBP started becoming a buzzword. It started becoming what wellness became when, when it kind of took off. And then it started getting a little bit of a bad rep. And I believe that the reason for that is consultants are looking for a way to reduce costs. And so they're layering something like RBP onto a health plan. But there are so many other components that go into the success of something as disruptive as RBP can be. And the point of the article was to highlight that there are multiple components to a successful known non-network plan. And you really have to do your analysis. You have to do the market research. You have to be able to measure the tolerance, not only of your client, but of the provider community that you're about to unleash this, this new method on. And I wrote the article just to highlight some of the needed components, but also to bring attention to some of the statistics around some of the pushback that RBP gets, which is usually around balance billing and accessibility issues. And I talked a little bit about um, repricers, revenue models, and and what to look out for. And and I loved the attention that that article got. I think a lot of people got a lot out of it and, and a lot more information than they've ever heard about RBP. But there is a way to do it well, and there's a way to do it not very well. Well, that's true with an awful lot of things, including another subject that you've written about, which is HSAs. And you and I share some similar viewpoints about HSAs. And you wrote about, I think the article is called The Spiral of HSAs. What was your viewpoint there and what did you talk about? So I'm a little bit of an, a data geek. I love numbers and I follow analysis pretty well. I do all of the analysis for, for ePowered and I, I'm frequently got my head in numbers and I like to follow trends and I keep a close eye on things. And I had a couple of clients, this was a couple of years ago, that had implemented high deductible health plans and with the HSA, of course. And I started digging into some financial projections as as anybody would. And the first couple years, what I noticed is that costs really do plummet for employers, which on the surface seems like a great solution and, and seems like a wonderful success. The problem becomes you get to year three, four, and five, and while the costs continue to stay low, the increase in chronic conditions or unmanaged illnesses goes up while your costs either stay static or just going up ever so slightly. And so I started noticing this trend. And then, of course, it sent me down this rabbit hole. And my belief, as I said in the article, is that the health savings account is a great idea in theory. It's the high deductible health plan that's the requirement coupled with it that seems to be the problem. And the idea of the health savings account is to give consumers the ability to make more intelligent health decisions. The problem becomes that they are tied to an unaffordable health insurance policy and the healthcare system itself has not provided them the transparency they need in order to actually make those decisions. So while you have over here a fairly good resource in theory for someone to really engage in consumerism, we're not giving them the tools to actually engage in consumerism. So in theory, they're a great idea. In practice, they don't work very well. And what tends to happen financially to employers that implement it is their costs plummet year one, year two, and then their costs start creeping up. And that instance of higher catastrophic claims tend to go up. And let's keep in mind that the money, all the money that the employer has saved, it's not gone away. Someone else is paying for it. And in this case, 
it's the employee and it's, those are the people that are least equipped to afford that level of investment. Well, but I mean, at least part of the theory around the high deductible health plans, and I, I say theory with a capital T, <laughs> was that if there is a large deductible, then there will be an upfront portion of healthcare costs for which consumers need to shop. And by doing that, we can then start making folks think like consumers, uh, that the consumers they are in all the other aspects of their life. So if you don't use that kind of a mechanism, how do you start turning the corner and get people to start thinking like consumers? What other ways might you do that? Well, one of the strategies that we've implemented at ePowered, and, and every single one of our health plans and our clients have this, but we actually offer the opposite. We offer employees the tools to look up quality for a specific procedure or we'll help them through it. And we'll tell them that if they go that route, if they decide to go with a higher quality option that we already know is going to equate to a lower cost through you know, market research that's becoming sort of the the norm for everyone now that will actually waive their costs altogether. So instead of telling an employee that it's, you know, the high deductible health plan has sort of become a threat almost to an employee because you're saying, you know, do your due diligence or you're going to have to pay this, this huge amount of money and actually either way you're going to pay it. And we take an opposite approach. We say if you if you use the tools and the resources or you just reach out and allow someone to help you find the higher quality option, we'll waive all your costs altogether. And what's been really miraculous about this strategy is that our health plans save so much money for the first year just because we've already established that if higher quality care is delivered, the cost associated with that care is lower. So even when we're waiving the employee's portion of the cost, the employer is still paying less and the employee is getting access to higher quality care. So we've just got about another minute or two left, but I did want to ask you a follow-up question to that. And that is, how do you get employees to start utilizing those services? Do you, in the case of a partially self-insured plan, do you change the SPD to require, I guess, what would be the equivalent of a second opinion? So they have to call a clinician. Do you do it solely through employee education? What What's most effective in doing that? So we usually don't make anything mandatory unless the client really does have a high tolerance for it, but we will give two options. And that is that you can do whatever you've always done and experience the same thing that you've always experienced, or there is a financial incentive or the waiving of the financial burden associated with doing something else. And if you're a manufacturing employee or a retail employee and you make a fairly low salary, I think that incentive to have your deductible waived, to have your out-of-pocket costs waived will entice you to just take that extra couple of steps in the beginning. So instead of punishing people for not doing the right thing, we're rewarding them for doing the right thing instead. And that tends to be a lot more attractive to an employee. That's a great place to leave our conversation for today. Emma Passe, COO of ePowered Benefits, and we'll make sure that there are links to the Empowered Leadership Movement and all of the other ways of getting in touch with Emma in the show notes on shiftshapersonline.com. Emma, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for being a shift shaper. Thank you so much, David, for having me. It was lovely. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.